financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman. Today is Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. My partner, Dominic Tavella, is traveling and unavailable. So tonight's show, we're going to have a little bit of a different format. And my guest this evening for the entire half an hour is John Mackay, who's with Schroeder's, and he's a head of sales and U.S. intermediary and investment strategist. Good evening, John. How are you? Michael, I'm doing great. How about yourself? Good. It's good to see you again. You too. Good to see you back in the office, and thanks for making the time. It's great to be back in the office. So, uh, you know, feels normal again. Exactly. I understand. Um, so, look, John, let's just jump right into it. Today Today was a, a pretty good uh, bounce-back day. The S&P and NASDAQ were both up 2.5%. We've both seen this movie before. So I'll just ask you right out of the box, you think there's a little bit of a head fake, or do you think we get some sustainability from this? So I wish I could say it was a sustainable move higher. We've seen the worst of the market drawdown so far. But I think, unfortunately, we've been going through a re-rating in the market. We came into the year with equity valuations at fairly elevated levels, um, and they've had to adjust to what is going to be a more challenged economic environment, a more challenged earnings environment, and a more challenged monetary backdrop, meaning the Federal Reserve has started hiking rates. And when they made it clear that they were going to hike rates to rein in inflation, that pushed up interest rates, and interest rates are now competition with capital. So versus the prior 10 plus years where there was no real competition for capital, so equity valuations were allowed to run at fairly high levels, this year has been a reset. Is it worth paying 20 times forward earnings for the index or for a company? And the answer, based on what we've seen so far, is probably not. Um, and so the head fake we've seen, um, I think it's a head fake because I don't think we're quite at fair value yet for the S&P 500. And we'll use that as a proxy for U.S. equities. Um, and so I think you could see another, another bit of a move down until we find the market's footing. And the footing should be at a level that is close to long-term fair value, which is about 15 times forward earnings. We're at 16 today. So I heard an analyst this morning on my way to work talking. I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the earnings ratio because I, I, I heard an analyst this morning who had a point of view, which I never really heard before. He tied the, 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 his, the history of the CPI to the multiple of the S&P 500. And I, I don't know the analyst's name because I jumped in in the middle. But what he, what he said was historically when the CPI is five or higher, and obviously we're way above that now, that the historical multiple for the S&P was 12. And then, you know, which I thought was really bearish, that's 30% lower. I mean, more than that now yeah. with the rally, the market wasn't open when he said that. And then he said, if the CPI is around three, then the multiple should be pretty much where you were at, where you guys, the Schroders, were at at 15. So I guess my question is, discounting what this gentleman said, particularly when you guys look at the multiples and fair value, are you looking at CPI right now? Or what are you basing that multiple on, John? 
All right. So I'm going to try and keep this as simple as possible, but it's going to get a little messy. So mm-hmm. I think what the analyst was referring to, so one is CPI above 5% hasn't happened a lot in the last 30 years. That was, you know, CPI and inflation was heading on a, on a downward trajectory coming out of the 1980s. That was the last time it was firmly above 5%. So we don't have a lot of historical data for the markets and how they should be valued when inflation is that high. Um, But what always accompanies high inflation is high interest rates. So high interest rates or where the level of interest rates is an easy way to sort of gauge where should equities be trading if the 10-year treasury yield is at 1%, 5%, or 10%. And again, this gets back to competition for capital. If you were going to put a dollar to work in the market today, would you be better off buying the 10-year treasury at 3.3% where it is right now or buying the S&P 500 at 15 times or 16 times forward earnings? And how do you make that comparison? And the way you make it is you essentially flip that um, price earnings ratio upside down. Mm-hmm. So instead of being a ratio, it becomes a percentage. And so if you take the future earnings and you divide them by the price, you get what's called the earnings yield for the S&P 500, which right now is probably around 5%, somewhere in that range. So if you subtract five, if you subtract the 10-year treasury yield from 5%, you get what's called the equity risk premium. And what that tells you is how much additional yield, earnings yield, are you getting for buying equities, which should go up over time, versus buying the 10-year treasury yield at 3.3%. Because you know if you buy that at 3.3% today, at the end of 10 years, you'll get back 3.3%. It doesn't change. Mm-hmm. If you sold it in five years, maybe you'd get a little bit more, or a little bit less, depending on where interest rates had gone. Um, but you know you're set. Your return is set. For equities, it's unknown. You just don't know where it's going to go, and you would hope it's going to go up over time. So you should get paid a premium for that. Um, and the premium you're getting paid from an earnings yield perspective for the S&P 500 is not enough. It's not where it should be based on, on long-term averages. At 15, assuming the 10-year treasury yield doesn't move up anymore, it would be at fair value. You'd be getting paid somewhere around 35 to 4% additional yield versus the 10-year treasury. That's fair. That, that mm-hmm. means you're getting good risk or you're getting paid for the risk you're, you're taking on when you're buying the equity market. So if inflation stays high, I would expect the equity market to move down towards a number that gives you compensation for the risk you're taking on. If inflation drops rapidly for some reason, maybe the Fed's done their job and supply chain issues get fixed and consumer demand is um, is slowing down, the 10-year treasury will fall on the back of that. And then maybe the, S- the S&P 500 can sort of stay at that level. So that's how, I, that's how I'd think about it. But that's probably what that analyst was looking at when they were talking about CPI at elevated levels and where the PE ratio should be. Thank you for that explanation. And you know what? It may be a little mathy, but it was very easy to understand. So thank you for that. <laughs> so sorry for that. No, no, it was great. Thank you. Um, I felt like I was back in seventh grade math, you know, we turned the ratio into percentage. <laughs> My wife is a sixth grade math teacher. She'll explain that to me tonight. Um, <laughs> um, so, so you mentioned the CPI and interest rates and, and inflation. And I think the story throughout 2022 has simply been, that we still cannot trust the Fed yet that they have a handle on this. We have zero reason to trust the Fed. And, you know, we should potentially give them the benefit of the doubt. They have more information than you and I do about the economy. They've got the Fed governors that work in different regions around the country that are literally talking to companies day in, day out. And so the level of information they get is pretty good. 
the unfortunate thing is their communication has been terrible. Mm -hmm. A year ago, less than a year ago, nine months ago, they were talking about inflation as transitory. Um, now they're talking about inflation as the primary problem they have to deal with. It is not transitory. Permanent's too strong, but it's, you know, it is endemic. It's, you know, it's embedded in the economy. Um, they had talked about never hiking interest rates 75 bips. They hiked 75 bips last week. They had talked about a dual mandate of maintaining inflation at a targeted level of sort of two to two and a half percent and maximizing employment. They're now only focused on inflation. So I think, unfortunately, the Fed's credibility has been shaken and we can't rely on the Fed or we can't, we can't listen to the Fed and know that that's exactly what they're going to do because they could change their mind a week later. So you have a, that unfortunate overlay of that overhang on the markets that we don't really know what the Fed's going to do from here. And I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt, but they haven't earned it um, based on the way they've been communicating over the last sort of six to eight weeks. So, John, how does a Fed who I think behaved, you know, really, you know, spot on in the beginning of the pandemic, yep. opened up the water hose, threw as much money as this, at, at the as the economy closing down as they had to, how does the same Fed, it's the same chief, it's mostly the same governors, how'd they go from being spot on to missing the mark, you know, 24 months later? So I wouldn't put all the blame on the Fed. I Very few economists on the sell side um, got this right. I'd say most people were in the transient inflation camp Speaking of generalities here, mm -hmm. there were a couple that thought that inflation was, was going to be a permanent part of our economic story for the next um, couple of years at the very least. Um, and it's easy to do this in hindsight as well. But I think the Fed unfortunately fell into that trap of hoping that once, the, once COVID sort of became, once COVID lockdowns eased, people got back out there, supply chain issues would fix themselves and the inflation number would drop dramatically from sort of eight, nine percent down to a more reasonable level in the three to four percent range. What they didn't count on was the amount of demand um, that was coming through and is showing up now in wage numbers. Um, and I think they've grown, grown increasingly concerned that you've got um, inflation becoming psychologically embedded in consumers and businesses. Once that happens, it's very hard to break that. And the only way to break it is to hike similar to what uh, Volcker did back in the early 1980s, where he basically hiked us into a recession. I really hope that Powell and co. don't want to do that. Um, but they've caught themselves behind the eight ball. They underestimated the inflationary forces, um, that part of which are short-term in nature, part of which are long-term in nature. But they severely underestimated the inflationary forces coming through the economy um, because of supply chain issues as well as demand. From consumers. I'm really happy you mentioned Paul Volcker in the 80s because I've had calls from several clients who remember those days, you know, and ask me, are we going to go back to those days of 17, 18% interest rates? And I have to remind them that this Fed has way more runway than that Fed because this Fed is starting literally at zero or was starting at zero. And the likelihood, in my opinion, and I would love yours of getting 16 to 17% is I think a little far-fetched. There's no guarantees in finance and investing and predicting the economy, but I'll put a guarantee on this. We're not going to 16% on the 10-year treasury or the Fed funds rate. 
And part of the reason is the supply chain issues are slowly but surely fixing themselves. It's not going to happen overnight, but you're seeing it um, manifest itself in things like shipping data. There's more ships moving from Southeast Asia to the U.S., from Europe to the U.S., and from the U.S. to Europe. So supply chain, that's a pretty simple way of thinking about it, but that is fixing itself. Um, the other issue is um, you're seeing it basically in surveys, like consumer sentiment surveys, mm -hmm. consumer sentiment is really, really poor right now. Mm -hmm. um, spending activity is still high, but sentiment generally leads spending activity. So spending slows down. That's going to pull the inflation numbers down with it as well. We're not going back to one to one and a half percent on inflation. We likely will probably settle on a range between three to four percent. But if we're at three percent, the Fed funds rate probably needs to be up around three. It doesn't need to be at 16. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for a four, Fed funds rate needs to be a little bit higher than that. It needs to be maybe at four, but we don't need to be at 16. So um, it's not going to be Volcker-esque. That's not what, what's going to happen, but it's going to be the most hawkish Fed we've seen in basically 30 years. As the expression goes, the Fed has finally taken away the punch bowl, correct? Correct. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The spiked punch bowl, I might add. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So one of the reasons I was really thrilled that you agreed to come on our podcast tonight is Schroeder's has a global is a global firm. It, it, it has a, it has, you know, analysts all over the world. And you guys take more of a global view than just being, you know, U.S. centric. So just, you know, if you can explain to us if we do go into a recession. Um, well, let me let me rephrase that. Explain to us the 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 global problems that we're facing now, you mentioned one, the supply chain issues, the, 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 the strict COVID rules in Asia, the war in Ukraine, all these things have kind of been part of the soup that put us where we are tonight, correct? That is 100% correct. And I don't think anyone back on Jan 1st would have predicted Russia invading Ukraine. It's obviously had a massive impact on a number of commodities not just industrial metals and oil and gas, but also food. And that you're seeing that play out in food prices and unfortunately some frontier markets where, you know, Egypt, for example, imports about 90% of their wheat from Ukraine. Um, you know, that is a core component of everyone's diet in Egypt. And so you're going to see certain countries get hit worse than others from the war in Ukraine. Europe imports about 40% of their gas from Russia. Um, so far, it's still coming in. It's at a significantly higher price, but they can't magically wave a wand and, you know, divert, you know, companies and individuals, um, you know, homeowners to different sources of power to heat their homes or run their businesses. So that's going to be an overhang on the European economy for some time. I'd say the one bit of positive news we're hearing from analysts around the world is on the supply chain front. So a big piece of that was the shutdowns, obviously some of it was just COVID around the world, right? You had less people going to work. You could, you know, it was more expensive to import things. It was less supply of things, but specifically in China and China's zero COVID policy was a mistake. That's known now. They're not willing to admit that. Um, but the lockdowns that, that they um, put on in Shanghai and to a smaller degree in Beijing had a really negative impact on the economy. And um, they're slowly lifting them. They're not going to snap their fingers and lift it overnight. But as they lift those, I think what you're going to end up seeing is a rebound in economic activity in China. China is the second biggest economy in the world. 
they're one of the only economies in the world that are also easing policy. We're tightening policy. Europe is, England is, Australia, Japan, well, Japan at the margin, but mm -hmm. most economies around the world are tightening to rein in inflation. China's easing. If China rebounds, that has a positive ripple effect throughout emerging markets, especially in Southeast Asia, because they're so tied into the China production um, system. That will also have a positive ripple effect to some developed econ economies that have a very strong economic tie to China. So Australia, for example, exports most of their industrial metals to China. Not surprisingly, they're building you know, cities and things like that and cars, et cetera. Europe has a very strong trade tie to China. So if China rebounds, it should have a positive knock-on effect to the global economy and a positive knock-on effect um, specifically to Europe, as well as some countries like Australia that have very strong trade ties to China. So on a going forward basis, I think I think the sentiment here has changed rapidly, you know, preparing investors that there is a high higher probability now than say two or three months ago that we might slip into a recession if the Fed has to slam on the brakes as quickly as they are now. That being said, is is if if America goes into a recession, does that cause a domino effect on a world stage? that other nations will follow suit? It is certainly possible. And the old saying is, if the US sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. So it would be hard for countries like Europe. It'd be hard for countries that export a lot of stuff to us. So China being one, China's not going into recession, but it would limit their growth rebound if we went into recession. The one thing I'd say about the recession here in the US is recessions are usually caused by one of three things. One is, um, too much leverage in the consumer space, right? We spend too much, we take on too much debt. Um, you know, we get over our skis and then we start pulling back and that causes a recession. A corporate-led recession, so co companies take on too much debt, they expand too quickly, you know, um, sales don't keep up and they eventually cause us to go into a recession as they pull back or a bank-led recession. So that's why 07, 08, 09 was so bad. It was banks and consumers at the same time. All three of those sectors are in really good shape. Consumers still have really strong balance sheets where you have very tight labor markets. So employment is extremely low. Companies have very little debt on their balance sheets. Banks are still in extremely strong shape given all the restrictions that were put on them coming out of 08. So if we do have a recession, it would be a very mild minor recession in our view. That's the most likely scenario if we go into a recession. So it would be short-lived. It would be a small R recession. Um, so the impact on the rest of the world would be obviously less impactful versus what we experienced in um, 08. So I think it's less likely that happens. I think it's actually more likely that the Fed sort of acknowledges that what they've said and what they've done so far is having an impact on demand. That's the only real way they can have an impact on the economy. Um, and so they may actually slow down their pace of hiking rates from here. At least that's my hope. I mean, they could make a mistake and that would push us into a recession. But my hope is we actually skirt a recession. We don't quite go, um, you know, we don't experience that over the next 12 months or so. And just for the benefit, oh, by the way, that's great news. And uh, obviously, I hope you're right. And just for the benefit of our listeners, when you say a, a smaller or lighter recession, that's obviously based on time, correct? Correct. So unlike 2008, where we basically went through a, um, almost an 18-month period of negative growth. And one of the quarters of growth was negative 12%, mm -hmm. one of the worst downturns we've seen since the Great Depression. Um, this would be similar to some smaller short-lived recessions that we went through 
in the 1990s. We went through a very, very brief one, two quarters of negative GDP, but it was marginal. We were negative, but you could you barely noticed it um, from a consumption perspective. The markets paid attention to it. The markets were down 20% plus. Um, but for consumers and businesses, it was sort of a blip on the radar. Barely remembered a couple of years later. Got it. Um, a couple of weeks ago, before the CPI came out, I was cautiously optimistic with my clients, telling them that if we had any signs that inflation was cooling off, I thought the market could have a decent rally. And then I also cautioned them, if there's no signs that the that CPI is cooling off, the market could be punished. Obviously, unfortunately, the latter happened. So here we are again, about two and a half weeks out from, from another CPI number. You know, today was a head fake, in your opinion, and I agree with you. How many reads of the CPI do you think we need to get in a row of it finally cooling off? Or how much does it have to cool off before Wall Street believes that Powell and his Fed have got this under control? It's a great question. I'll give you my best guess. Um, I think you need more than one. I think if the next CPI number shows some semblance of a decline from the previous one, I think that will be received positively and get a little bit of a rally in the markets. But I think the hope would be that you get not one, you get multiple. So you get you know, the next number, the one after that, and the one after that. So it's a true trend. It's not just a one-off, which for seasonal factors or maybe temporary factors cause the decline. Um, that's something the market would cling to. And that would, again, get back to my point about maybe the Fed doesn't have to hike 75 bips every meeting till we get to 3% by the end of the year. Maybe they can slow things down a little bit and sort of see how that plays out. Is that a true trend? Um, can they back off a little bit? Because you know inflation is sort of not curing itself, but things like supply chain improvements, a slowing in consumer demand is sort of doing the Fed's job for them. So, John, I always like to, uh, if I can, end these shows on a little bit of a high note. And, and you know, the all word seems so dreadful and, and, and so ominous. But the reality of it is people still go to work. People still spend money. People still yep. go out to eat on the weekends. Yes, things may slow down, but it's not like 2020 where literally things stopped, right, because of the pandemic. So... Where are the opportunities if we if we do slow down, if we do slip into a recession, mild or not, where are the opportunities going forward? Because there's always got to be a place to put some money. Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that question, Michael, because this is one of my favorite topics these days. So this is the first time ever where cash has beaten bonds, value stocks are beating growth stocks. Um, commodities are beating everything. I mean, oil prices are up roughly 40% year to date and, you know, most industrial metals, some are negative, but most of them are up sort of 15, 20% and so on. Natural gas is up 80% year to date. So commodities are the clear winner. Um, but international is also beating the U S. So what's the common thread through all of those gets back to a point I made earlier about duration, right? Growth stocks have more duration in them than value stocks. Value stocks are inherently cheap. It's not a lot of duration in a energy company versus say a hyper growth tech company. Um, the U S is just by makeup of the market is more growthy than say Europe or most of emerging markets are. Um, commodities have no duration in them whatsoever, right? They're one month futures contracts on things we need day in, day out. 
Um, and obviously cash has no duration. It's daily liquid. You get it today versus bond, which has a two-year, five-year, 10-year, 30-year maturity to it. I think that's where the opportunity is because positioning in those areas is extremely light, right? Value didn't work for 10 years. U.S. beat international for 10 plus years. Commodities were left for dead for basically eight plus years. And I think that's where the winners will be going forward because I think with inflation as the backdrop, um, consumers and companies are going to be more focused on the things they need versus the things they want. Um, I'm generalizing here, but you need food, shelter, clothing, you need healthcare, you need education, you need fuel for your car to go to work, to drop your kids off at school. That's, those are the things you need. And if the price of those things go, goes up, maybe you have a little less money for the brand new jacket for wintertime or the extra night out at dinner or, you know, um, you know, the new, the additional subscription to Netflix or Disney plus or mm -hmm. things like that. You'll still use those things. Maybe you just don't use them as willy nilly as you did before. Um, and so the common thread there is value should continue to do well. I may not beat growth as much as it has over the last six months, but it should continue to beat growth because there are more need companies versus want companies in value and the international given the makeup of the market tends to be more value driven than growth driven. So I think that's where the opportunity is. A lot of people aren't allocated there. They, they certainly don't have overweights in those sectors. So I think it's about rethinking where you, where you focus your extra dollar, your incremental dollar in today's market. I think it would be in those areas. It's value, it's commodities, and it's international. You know, I love the expression, it's the need companies versus the want companies. And I would add, and tell me if I'm wrong, the need companies also pay a dividend, don't they? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So if you look at the best performing sectors year to date, it's energies followed by staples, utilities, healthcare, which is a little bit of a mix and then materials. So two of those don't pay a lot of dividends. They starting to, because they're earning a lot of money. That's energy and materials, but staples and utilities pay a very, generally a very high dividend yield. Um, and so I think to your point, those, a mix of those kinds of companies, they may not be the sexiest companies, the most exciting companies, they're not big innovators, but uh, they do provide something you need, income or a, a product that everyone uses on a day-in, day-out basis. John, one last question. We're running out of time. I can't let you go without at least briefly mentioning technology. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the fangs. You touched on Netflix briefly. You know, do we just stay, do we just stay away from these companies? Because I would think that companies like Amazon and Tesla – you know, there's still a value there. There's still an excitement and some sexiness with these yep. companies and growth. So I, I can't mention individual companies and the right. valuations, but I'll put it this way. Um, I think in an environment where we had low economic growth and we had very low inflation, just not a lot of competition for capital, um, it was more interesting or more um, exciting to pay 40 times future earnings for one of those companies that generates tons of earnings, tons of free cash flow, et cetera. In an environment where you have higher interest rates, it's harder to justify paying that kind of valuation. So I think the important point here is there are plenty of tech companies today because of the re-rating we've seen and the drawdown we've seen, they're actually trading at pretty reasonable valuations. Semiconductor companies, for example, that's a need. We need those companies. They produce microchips, which are effectively in everything that we use on a day-in, day-out basis. So that's a need within the technology sector. There are other companies that produce fun things and nice things, but they trade it 60 times forward earnings. That's not a need, right? 
Um, you don't need that in your portfolio necessarily. So I think if those companies get down to more reasonable valuations, I think that's when they become interesting. Um, but that's how I would think about the tech sector today. Are you getting value for the price you're paying for a company that produces what? Do they produce something we need or something we want? And if it falls in the want category, I think you need a really low valuation to justify it. I love that. I love the need versus want. Thank you for that. Listen, I know you got to run and I appreciate you setting aside this half hour for us. It time went by really quickly. And for our listeners, um, because Dom is, is away Last week, Dominic and I did a show where we broke down um, bear markets and, you know, what happens in them. And we're going to replay a part of that for the second half hour. So I hope you guys stick around for that. And, uh, John, I will let you go and I will see you down the road. My pleasure, Michael. Thanks so much for having me on the show again. Thank you. We'll be right back right after this break. Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Symbol L-E-G-A-X. Le tax. Rates on cash are already so low. Why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn. It's what you keep. The Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to The Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with my partner, Dominic Tavella. And Dominic, I know a podcast is uh, audio medium, but um, I shared my screen this evening, and a lot of a lot of our folks do listen and watch the, the podcast on uh, YouTube, and we do get it out to them in an email. And I thought thought it was important to share our screen tonight because we got a great great um, 
um, link from Hartford Investors talking about other bear markets. You know, in the headline, Dom, as you can see, is avoid costly panic-driven investment decisions during a crisis and remain focused on the long term. And then, you know, they show these, these um, red buttons of markets in the past that have gone down 30%. And they go back as far as 1968, when interest rates rose above 9%, and we're in the middle of the Vietnam War, and the market went down 36% over a year and a half period. And then during the oil embargo in the early 70s, it went down 48.2%. And then the stock market crashed right around the time you and I got into the business. I was going to say, Mike, that was my first one, still still scarred for life. Yep, I remember the day well in August. Really, October was in a really was that one dramatic, uh, what they call a Black Monday. Friday and then Monday. Yeah. So that was down 33 and a half. And then we all remember the dot-com bubble down 36.8. WorldCom collapse, Tyco executive indicted, Ford closes five plants, a bombardment of bad news. And over a nine-month period, the market went down 33.8% in 02. And then the financial crisis, we all remember, that was a, that was a doozy from 07 to March of 09. It went down 56 0.8%. And then the one we just got out of, Dominic, global pandemic, the market was down um, in a two-month period, believe it or not, 33.9%. So that's what's interesting to me, Dominic. The first one between November 29th and 1968 and May 26, 1970, almost a year and a half, the market went down 36.1%. And then, and then this time in, in what, five weeks? It did the same thing. You know, Mike, and, and look, we're looking at the 30 plus percent ones. God knows how many 20 plus percent ones were oh, in, too many. in the middle of those. Too many to list. And, you know, again, you and I um, both having gotten into the industry in the early 80s, I, I think we could still probably rattle every one of these off. But, you know, I find it you know, surprising clients like, well, we haven't had something like this bad in a really long time. I'm like, <laughs> March, March of 2020. That was just two years ago. And this is the S&P at 33.9. But the NASDAQ, I think, was over 40%. So I call it a 35, 40% on the average correction. That was just two years ago, two years ago. And again, we know why the world, not just the US, the world economy was completely shut down. It's logical that markets would react in a very negative way. And then when once uh, it looked like that some kind of vaccine would come in and the economies would reopen up, the, the markets recovered. So we're looking at a, a 22, 3% right now for the S&P. It might get worse before it gets better based on this idea that, that inflation uh, will not subside really quick. But if you had sold out of your portfolio at any one of these moments, Mike, any mm -hmm. one of those, when would you have gotten back in? You don't. You don't, Dom. You don't get back in. I still have clients waiting to get back in from the, from the financial crisis 13 years ago. Mike, a, a stat I know I've used many a times, um, you know, in the last crisis two years ago, um, 35% of people over the age of 65 got completely out of the market. 
and they got out at the bottom. They didn't get out after full recovery of their portfolios. They got out at the bottom. Well, have they even gotten back in, Mike? And many of them have not. Right. Many of them not. You know, and um, you, you and I, from time to time, talk about headline risk, and you and I try to, you know, when it's appropriate, we, we could always lean on the, on the media a little heavy. But Hartford gave us a statistic, which I personally have never seen before. Maybe you have. Let me just read this paragraph, which I think is very telling. When a crisis hits, news ratings surge. For example, in the early days of the global pandemic, from March 16th to 20th in 2020, Fox News saw its ratings climb 89% over the same time last year, while CNN was up 193% and MSNBC was up 56%. So, you know, it is the old axiom that if it bleeds, it leads. And, and when, as I said earlier in the first segment, people come home, they flip on the news, they've been doing their day job all day, they haven't been paying attention, and they see these headlines, and they interview the man on the street, and they make a spontaneous decision, oh, my God, I'm going to get out because it's never getting better. And Mike, uh, you know, we, we just kind of spent a little time going in the timeline over these last five days. But when you get home from work on a Friday, whatever you do, you're a fireman, you're a cop, you're a doctor, and you turn on the news and it says the stock market plunged, right? Plunged. Right. <laughs> you really want to look at your portfolio? And if you do, do you really want to go for that roller coaster ride? Do you blame the fact that people make emotional decisions? Absolutely. I mean, Tom, we, we had that guest on a couple of weeks ago, and he said if the buttons on the elevator said plunge and soar, no one would get into an elevator, right? It's, I don't blame people for making uh, decisions when they've watched their life savings go through these roller coaster rides. Um, I think what we're both asking people to do is pause take a moment. What is it that we're trying to do over what time frame are we trying to do it? And if you need the money next week, I get it. Do what you got to do. Um, but if you're looking at somebody who's in their 40s and they're going to retire 20 years from now, well, we can go back to your private pr prior chart, Mike. These things, unfortunately, but they happen. Life interferes. We get periods of time where something frightens the markets, frightens businesses, frightens consumers, frightens um, economies, and we need time to recover. And we usually and historically do. Dom, this next chart is super important. It's super telling. Again, this is one you and I have both seen many, many, many times. This chart's called the price of panic. And, and they, they display a $10,000 investment in the S&P 500 that began on December 31st, 1959, and went all the way through the end of last year, December 31st, 2021. And they include the market drops along the way. Every, every market drop I described is on this chart. And, and to your point about the cash investor and staying fully, invest, fully invested, if you invested your money in cash over that period, that $10,000 today would be worth $142,000. $142,030 to be exact. Not terrible. If you were the reactionary investor, someone who got in and out and tried to time the market, Dominic, but you were in the market for periods over that time, 
you would have $550,194 over those 61 years. The bond investor would have $834,536. These are really telling. The balanced investor, Dominic, would have $2,520,076. And the person who kept all of their $10,000 invested over the last 61 years and just let it ride and let it go through those crises we've outlined would have $4,973,667, Dominic. The, the, and I, I think this is where we're going to go next, Mike. It's the emotional fortitude to understand what it is that you actually own, to understand where your monies are. And I know I've gone through it a few, quite a few times recently with my clients. I think you do as well. People are like, well, I own the S&P 500. And, and that's such a, a kind of ambiguous statement, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a, an index. But when you start breaking it down, what is it that I actually own? Most people are like, well, those are good companies. Those companies are not going to go out of business. Those companies are probably going to be around 5, 10, 20 years from now. They're just going through a business cycle, right? So again, this common sense conversation versus an emotional conversation. Yeah. And, and Dom, let's go through some of those names. And obviously, you know, we're not going to go through all 500 and neither one of us know all 500, but we mentioned a couple on the break. What'd you say? There was Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, and- so, so I, I brought it up, Mike, while, while we were on the break. It's one of, one of the ETFs that we own in our client portfolios. The symbol is Q-U-A-L, QUAL, standing for quality. These are supposed to be some of the best companies in the United States. Uh, and I'm just going to rattle off the top 10 holdings. Um, so if you own QUAL, you literally own Johnson and Johnson. Mm-hmm. You own Nike, you own Apple, you own Meta, the old Facebook, Microsoft, Costco, MasterCard, NVIDIA, Eli Lilly, Alphabet, Google. Mm-hmm. Those are just the top 10 holdings and probably another 50 or so companies like it. Um, when I rattle off those number, those names to my clients and say, well, this is what you actually own. Mm-hmm. And I realize they're most of those companies are selling at a 20, 30, 40% discount to where they were six months ago. Do you want me to sell them? And they're like, no, I want you to buy more. They're on mm-hmm. sale, right? And that investor that you showed in the prior chart, Mike, that ended up with $4 million in the bucket was reinvesting their dividends mm-hmm. and buying more shares. So when those shares went down in value, and some would argue were on sale, but went down in value because of some economic cycle that we were going through, they were buying more shares of those companies at a discounted price. And that's what that compounding effect is that could allow a relatively small amount of money, $10,000, turn out to be worth $4 million. Almost $5 million. Almost yeah, five that many years later. Yeah, 4.9 million. Amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. You know, our business loves axioms, right? And one of its favorite, I think it goes this way. It's not timing the market. It's time in the market. Time in the market. And again, this I, I want to emphasize this ability to compound 
and buy more shares. Typically, it's dividends that the companies are paying out. But if you're in a 401k plan, Mike, and you're adding every single paycheck every week or two weeks or however you get paid, and you're taking money out of your paycheck and you're buying more shares, don't get excited out there, but you should get giddy when the market is down. If you are accumulating more shares on a regular basis, either monthly dollar cost averaging into an account or a retirement plan where you're adding every paycheck, you should be getting excited that you get to buy stuff at a 20 or 30% discount. Dom, I know we both know how to do it. I know we both talk about it. Why don't you explain to our clients and our audience what exactly dollar cost averaging is? So dollar cost averaging is that you are typically systematic, hopefully systematic. You are buying on a regular uh, dollar amount on a regular basis. So it could be once a month, once a paycheck, but you are buying into whether it's an individual stock or an index in the market or a portfolio, you are buying systematically on a regular basis. You're not really paying attention whether the stock market is high, the stock market is low. So sometimes you are buying because the market's performing very well. Let's talk about a year ago. You are buying when the market is high. But when the market is going through one of these corrections, like we're going right now, you're also buying low. And what that creates is an average price over a long period of time, where you didn't buy at the top, you didn't buy at the bottom, you bought at an average price, but ends up being substantially lower the, than the end price, which you showed on your chart, Mark, right. where that client almost had $5 million. So the advantage of this market volatility is to the investor that is buying on a regular basis. Right. So, so if you're putting away $100 every, every week, and, you, and you're buying a stock that costs $100, you obviously get one share. But guess what? If that price of the stock goes to $50, now you're getting two shares, right? You're getting twice as many shares when you're buying, you're buying on, on the way down. And the analogy that I always give my clients, if you're in the supermarket and your favorite coffee is 50% off a buy one, get one free, you don't say, oh, I'm not going to do that. That's, they must have put you know, the crappy coffee in there. You, of course, you, you buy as many of those cans of coffee as you can. And I'm just going to put one caveat, and that's quality. Right. right? You, that, when you're talking about the advantages of doing this, clearly when you're buying the S&P 500, you're buying all 500, and that index changes over time. So you're, you're kind of safe. But if you're trying to do this with, with lower quality companies, sometimes they don't recover. We all remember the garbage.com era where some of these companies disappeared off the face of the earth. But some of the names we just rattled off, Mike, and we're not making judgment calls on individual stocks, but good quality companies, good strong balance sheet, good earnings, good dividends, over time, they tend to do pretty well. And on that note, we're gonna take a quick break, Dominic, and we'll be back to wrap it up. When you're thinking about where to park your cash, for over 30 years in the business, I've been a fan of funds like the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's managed for cash and designed so the interest income you receive is free from federal taxes. And who doesn't love paying less taxes? Mike, generating interest that's free from federal taxes is appealing, but I've been in this business for a long time, and people love the potential for more income on their hard-earned cash. Sorry, Dom. But the beauty of the funds is paying less taxes on cash. No, my friend, it's the potential for more income. 
Mm-mm. Less taxes. More income. Less taxes. More income. Less For taxes. your cash, ask your advisor mm-hmm. about the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund less taxes. or find out more at dcmadvisors.com. Well, Dom, one thing I know we agree on, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-T-A-X. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to The Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman, back with Dominic Tavella try to put a bow on the last hour. And, and before we get into the last point we want to make, Dominic, I just want to make clear to our audience and to our clients, the, the, the information that we share tonight is available for us to email to you. If you'd like it, just contact either myself or Dom or our offices, and we'd be happy to email uh, this report that we got from Hartford Investors. And, and to that point, Dominic, um, I mentioned earlier it's not timing the market, it's time in the market. And the last bullet point we wanna go over is, um, is how the markets have performed by holding steady versus trying to time the market and, and, and get in and out. And the chart calls it the average equity investor, um, but really what they're saying is someone who trying to outsmart the S&P 500. Yeah, I think, Mike, and, uh, and you and I both get it. So uh, I don't want to say it's just me, but the client says, you know, let's get out. And then when things get better, we'll get back in. And so let me see if I get this right. We'll get out now that things are terrible, meaning the market is down or way down. And we'll get back in when the market recovers. We will sell low and buy high. Right. And it's, you know, when you explain it logically to people, they go, well, that, that's kind of silly. Right. But this chart that you have here, Mike, literally says that if you just held on and just went through the roller coaster ride over the last 30 years, the SP would have been over 10% a year. But the average investor, equity investor, uh, made only about 7% a year. And that's that person, like, I'll get out and I'll get back in when things calm down, you're literally selling low and buying back in at a higher price. It might make you feel better, but it sure uh, affects your total return, how much money you make on your portfolio. 
Yeah, and, and those clients who can see this along with us, Tom, like, these are average annual returns. This is not the 30-year return. This is the average annual return. So if you give up 3.5% a year, year, a year for 30 years, that's a big number. And that, that's back to that other chart, Mike, where right. the person who was all in was close to $5 million in assets, but that other person, maybe half that number, if you were lucky, or dramatically less. Um, so, And I think these numbers in themselves even can be a little, um, they're probably not as dramatic because I've seen numbers that are far worse in some of these very popular mutual funds where the fund over time has done incredibly well, but the average investors made a fraction because the people love these investments when things are going great and they hate them when things go awry mm-hmm. like they're doing right now and they get out right mm-hmm. so we can beat this horse to death but it comes down to try not to make these decisions emotionally and really reach out to, obviously our clients reach out to us and let, let us help you make these decisions maybe we have a have a more prudent way to uh, to approach this and tamp down some of your risk and some of the emotional part of this that makes you not sleep at night. Dominic, one, one exp- another expression that's been drilled in our heads since we've been in the business is past performance is not a promise of future results. So neither one of us could sit here tonight and say, we guarantee you that this is going to happen. But what we know, and again, believe me, Hartford would not be printing these things and distributing them if they knew that our regulators were going to come and slap them on their wrist, all we're trying to do tonight is provide some history, provide some perspective, not that we're going through isn't serious, but we will get through this one also. Yeah, Mike. And if it's one thing, I I, I think your, your charts, I I thought they were terrific, by the way, really showed is that, you know, this time it's different. No, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, the excuse is different. Right. The reason why it happens is different. Every one of those past 30 plus percent corrections had its own unique set of facts why it caused a market correction. So the reason might be different, but the reaction um, was very, very predictable. Um, and then I'm, I'm sorry to say, uh, although I can't guarantee anything, I'll bet you it happens again over the next 10, 20 years, Mike. Uh, I can't guarantee that it will, but these corrections do happen. But I think what we're both comfortable in is that the U.S. economy and U.S. companies are good at fixing it, recovering it, putting it back in place, and then we grow out of it. Right. Absolutely. So, no guarantees, Mike, but we have a pretty good history of doing it as a country. Um, and I do believe in that. I do believe that U.S. companies and the U.S. consumer who needs to spend money, will spend money, will revert to fixing it and things do recover. On that note, Dominic, we are out of time, my friend. Unbelievably, Mike, but one more in the books. See you next week. Have a great night. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a great week.